Hey everybody, my name is Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now before we get started, I wanted to encourage you to go listen to the previous episodes as well as to go and check out the podcast on Instagram. Once, If you don't know what that Instagram handle is, it is lunchboxradio underscore podcast over on Instagram. Um, I would love to get up to a couple more followers there, but... Um, on that note, let's jump into what we're talking about this week. That's a little show from from pretty recently, from um, I think from this year. Um, from from September, from September, from actually July in of 2022, a show called Vermil in Gold.
Now, oftentimes in anime, there are a kind of anime that are produced that I'm just going to say are not for everyone. But oftentimes, those anime are produced just to titillate, just, just because there is a market of people who are there for that. Perfect example of this is High School DxD. Another perfect example is um, New Testament Sister Devil, which is like... Those are two sides of the same coin, weirdly. And they are what I'm going to coin as big titty demon lady shows. And the reason, the reason why I say this is because so many of these shows have the exact, either have very little to say outside of their own genre or have the same thing to say outside of their own genre. And... They don't do a great job of balancing between the, like, etchy, sometimes borderline hentai-ness of the, like, lewd, lascivious, nonsense comedy of the show and the heart the show is trying to take. It, and lots of times they try and blend the two at two varying degrees. So... In something like High School D DxD, those get blended so close that it becomes it's like the joke becomes part of the like this the series plot in a way that it doesn't like it doesn't it neither ends up coming out pretty unscathed or good at the end of that of that scenario in that equation. And you look at something like 
like testament like like testament new sister devil i think is what it's called specifically and it doesn't like that show doesn't it doesn't really it it doesn't it can't hit the same marks as high school dxd does because high school dxd has now done that over four seasons um and it it tries to be super serious, but it can't be super serious. But it's also trying to be a really, he- like, hentai-adjacent, etchy show. Like, walk that line, and it it gets messy pretty quickly. Mostly because bo- what both of those shows do is they set... Is they set, is they set the world up, and they tell you to take it at face value. Now... Vermilion Gold does a lot of similar things to both of those shows, but it does some key things way differently because of how it's of what it's trying to say and what it's trying to do with a its pun intended titular big titty demon lady and what it's trying to do with the story as a whole. So I'm just gonna give a little setup to this here just because it's important to how you get from point A to B in this show. Basically, um, the main character, a character named Alto Goldfield, um, aspires to be a top mage. So he's attending um, Ortega Magic Academy. And in this world, in this world's version of magic, all magic revolves around not only your ability to use mana, magic energy, but also your ability to summon a familiar. And at the beginning of the show, you're seeing a student who is a straight-A student who is top of his class, but for whatever reason, he cannot summon a familiar. And everybody sees him as being this incredibly smart and bright student, but if he can't summon a familiar, his ability to use his knowledge of magic is kind of limited in in its way. And he can't... He can't... He can't... He's tried several times. He can't summon anybody. But... But I think it's by the end of the first episode, actually. By the end of the first episode... He has summoned a he has summoned a character. He, he has summoned a familiar. But unlike any of the other characters you meet throughout the show, or even any of the background, like even the background characters you see throughout the show, this this summon is not like a like a wind sprite. His his best friend and this girl who clearly has a secret crush on him named Lilia, her. Her familiar is this wind sprite. Um, there's a, there are other characters. Another character who's familiar is who has several familiars, and they're all dinosaurs. There's another character who's familiar is straight up a dragon, like a like an old school like of myths and magic, like knights and fairy tales dragon. He summons a demon or a demoness, basically. And that is the um, character Vermeil. Vermeil. 
And what Vermeil goes on to tell him is actually pretty interesting. She says, like, oh, the reason why nobody, like, why you couldn't summon anybody, like, like another familiar aside from me, is because everybody was fucking terrified of you. <laughs> and to which Alfred was like, that's, that's new, why? He's like, because you probably know that you have a real excess of mana. And what that meant, what what that meant for him was, his mana was so not only so plentiful but so potent that nothing would come near him. And just before I go any further here, because I want to get this out of the way at first, at least the way the show portrays him, I forget what age they put on. I think they make him a like a, your standard teenager. Alto is, he looks like the boy genius. He looks extremely young because of the kind of fetish bait that this show is trying to, um, trying to, um, knock at the door of. There's a, there's a pretty well-known, etchy, there's a pretty well-known H manga, um, about a character, who, about a Shota character with an older sister who's just straight up like a eldritch horror. And that's really what this show, what this concept is borrowing from. I forget what it's called. I'm older. But the long and short of it is, is that, so they set up this, they, they make this setup of this character who's at the beginnings of being ostracized by his, by his peers because he can't, he can't make a contract with a familiar. And then he finally summons one and it is a demon. It is a, a demoness rather. And it's not only is it a demon, but it's an extremely powerful demon in the form of Vermil. And she says, hey, in exchange for letting me out of the deep, dark nothingness you pulled me out of with, like, a beacon of, oh, shit, that's a lot of mana, I will contract with you for life. And he's hesitant at first, but he does it. And one of the things, it was the rules of this world, that, and the, the good thing about this show, and it's like, lewdness is that it attempts to ground everything by giving you rules and then taking a lewd twist on those rules instead of telling you the lewd thing they're going to do and making up the rules after. I know that doesn't seem like a big disclaimer, like like a big difference, but it is a big difference, especially in the way that they use it here. What you have to do with a familiar is you you provide the familiar with mana so they can stay on this plane of existence and like exist, and the familiar in turn serves you. And up at, through mo the other characters you meet all have familiars who are either like pixies or wind sprites or dinosaurs or dragons like they're almost like pets they're almost like magical pets but the 
the thing about Vermil is that she is very human looking. She is like, a, she's a big old lady, if that makes if that makes any sense. And what that means is, she's basically this. The, she is this, like, thirty-something, very sexy woman. She's wearing a virgin killer dress. If, um of internet fame, the virgin killer dress, the entire time. And other than the ho her horns and her tails, which she other than her true form, which you see later in the show, but she hides her horns and her tail. Because Alto kind of rightly is like, hey, I'm cool with you being a demon. You seem fine. You seem a little too turned on by me, and I'm a little uncomfortable with that. But other people will have questions. When we go to school, you should probably hide your ears. You should probably hide your tail and your horns. Because that will inspire a lot of questions we don't want to have to answer right now. Possibly ever. And she's like, oh, okay, that, that tracks. Demons are, in this world, demons aren't just things that exist. Like, in most fantasy worlds, they are things to be feared. And, you know, hijinks ensue for about four episodes. And then you get an episode, the, the, either, either, you get the fourth episode, for the first three, four-ish episodes. And then you get, like, the fifth episode, I think it is. That is called Creeping Madness. And up until this point, it is like lewd joke after lewd joke after lewd joke. You know, it is it is it is a like punchy, etchy comedy with some harem elements, essentially. But after the episode, after the episode entitled um, "Creeping Madness," you start to see what this show is really about, and this show is, in its way, about. Also, it is certainly like a big titty demon girl show, but it's it's more about what public perception of what you are as like a, a living thing in the world can do to somebody over time. Because the thing that Vermil does that no other familiar that you've seen so far the, the only one other familiar that you've ever encountered so far can do is she can talk and not only can she talk but she is like eons old she is like as old as time old she is she is an eldritch horror essentially and they do they do a great job of portraying the kind of seductiveness of that in her like she if you look at Rias Gremory from High School DxD, she doesn't come off so much as like a grand queen of the underworld. She comes off as a teenager with demon lady powers, with a laissez-faire relationship with sex and what that means. Vermil 
feels like she's been around for so long. She knows things about the world that you can't possibly know, that no one can possibly know. And she's seen the darkest of the dark, and she is the darkest of the dark, in fact. And it will come for you at some point. And they do an amazing job of showing that in her and showing her awareness of that. And she can, like, flip it on and off like a light switch. What the show starts to do after creepy, after the episode entitled Creeping Madness, it's either episode four or five, I, I, I suspect it's four. What that, what it starts to do after that is it starts to talk about how what that effect has on the person, on, like, the the thing, the person that is that thing and how they go and how they have gone through the world and how lonely that is and how separate that makes you from the rest of the world. And that, I think that that do, I think that that's doing something really interesting and important because and it's something that I don't, that I think a lot of media doesn't tackle particularly adeptly or even particularly well is that like what is it like to live outside of what is it like to live in a world that is actively hostile towards you in a real way in a way that if that if someone figures something out about you that is the end of you that is potentially the end of your of whatever happy little life you're living what if, and even more so, the world in Vermilion Gold is built up about, you know, one of with its primary acts at, of service to, the, to society is dealing with demons. And here she is walking around among them and they don't really know. And as characters find this out, everybody has various... Re reactions of like different severity to it but the the thing that this show does such a good job at and the thing that the reason why the reason that made me want to talk about it is that it it shows someone it shows a person struggling with a life that has left that have told them, hey, you're the monster, you're the problem, you're, you're not welcome here. And not only is this world built for you, but it's built against you, in spite of you, explicitly to exclude you. And at a point, it's built that way, not on purpose, but it's built that way almost in a worse way, which is by default. And I, I've talked about being a person with... A physical disability on this show before but that's the way that's the way much of life feels for people with disabilities if you've if you've ever broken a, a major bone I'm talking like an arm or a leg then you've experienced this for at least the month while the the period of time while it healed you've either been stuck in a wheelchair or in a walkable or in a cast with crutches or you've, been, or you've had an arm you couldn't use. 
And that meant that you had to figure stuff out. Because all of a sudden, you've been taken... You've entered a... You've entered the only minority that you can enter... That you can... That many people enter and leave. Not of their own free will, but of happenstance. And... I've known people who've broken their arms... Who've broken their arms specifically. And... Not because they wanted to, but because it just happened. And I always tell them, hey, you're going to have questions. There's going to be some stuff you can't do. When that time comes, you have my number. Give me a call. Trust me, don't try and text me. It's going to go bad for you. That's the first thing you should know. Just give me a call and ask me the question you want to ask. And I'll just give you the answer. Like, you, you don't need to struggle with it. I struggled with it. Decades ago at this point, and I have the answer. <laughs> or even worse yet, I never struggled with it at all. I just figured it out instantaneously in the moment. And you can have that knowledge too. And I had a, I had an acquaintance who, a, a acquaintance through work who had broken their arm. They're like, I won't have questions. And then like a couple days later, when Ackley was over at his house, bringing him some just, like, provisions and stuff because his arm was broken. He stared straight at me and goes, Hey, I do have a question. I haven't worn deodorant in a week. How do you put deodorant on? And I just told him. And I watched his eyes get so big that he, like, he was just like, I never would have figured that out. I would have spent this entire time not wearing deodorant. Thank you so much. And the the realization of that and like that and that action is because I I spend my entire life and I will live my entire life most likely unless I get a robot arm which would be sick um, in a world that is built for people with two hands constantly on the fly adapting things. To one hand. A, a perfect example. I I collect watches. And I got a watch recently. And usually I bring my watch. Because I wear them on my bad hand. They actually need to be sized very specifically. To a much smaller wrist size. So I. If it has a, if it has a full metal link bracelet. I take it to the jeweler. And the jeweler does it. But you can do that yourself. So for the first time, I actually did most of that work myself. I got all the links out, and then I tried to do the I tried to do the micro adjusts, and it went bad. So I had to bring it to the jeweler anyway. But you watch YouTube videos, and they'll tell you how to do it. You can do it with a thumbtack and a little hammer. It's pretty easy if you have two hands. The person never thinks about doing it with one hand. I had to sit. I had to sit and watch the. Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas Holiday Special and figure that out on my own. I figured it out. I did it. I Like, it was a success. But I had to spend the time and, like, puzzle through how am I going to do this? How is this going to work? Like, what what needs to get propped against what for this to be okay? And you realize after creeping after the 
pivotal episode, after the fourth episode of this show, the show is not about what you thought it was about. It that that will always be there. That like that big titty demon girl, like slightly harem-y base of tropes will always be there. But the thing this show is talking about, it is talking about what does it look like when someone has existed in a place, has has lived a life where everyone has been hostile towards them for no particular reason that other than what they, than how they were born. And what did that do to a person's what does that do to a person's self-esteem? What does that do to a person's willingness to have relationships outside of themselves with, with other people? What does that do to a person's place in society and how they act in the greater scheme of things? Now, it's no secret that Japanese culture is not particularly tolerant. And pretty aggressively xenophobic and racist and all the, all the bad words. But oftentimes when you see a, like, a sympathetic villain demon, a demon character, you see things like, you see in, um, what's it called? Um, the Netflix anime with, um, Meliodas. Um, so you see things like Seven Deadly Sins, where you get one character and the other demon characters are cast as villains, almost exclusively. But, in truth, the reality is probably more like the the way they treated Killmonger in um, the Marvel movies. The, sc- the scary thing about Killmonger is not that he's doing the wrong thing. It's not that he's wrong. He's right. In in both... In both the first Black Panther and now the second Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the villains are right. The villains are the people who are in the right. The heroes are actually in the wrong. They are protecting a status quo that will ultimately fuck them over. And the villains see that. And they see that in a way... That the heroes can't, because the villains have realized that this status quo is bad, and it doesn't need to be like this. It needs to change. The bad part of the villains is how they're going about changing it. They they are choosing like a really aggressive, violent, full of friction way of changing things. And the, but the, it takes the heroes, like, the whole movie in many cases to get to the point of, oh, we're not, they're right, we're wrong. They're not right about how what to do about it, but they're right about the problem. And the, so I've, I listened to this podcast called um, Decoder from um, the from Neil I. Patel over at The Verge, and he recently had a episode with the CEO, with the, I think it's the CEO of um, LinkedIn. And one of the things the CEO of LinkedIn said off mic was, it's okay if we're wrong as long as we're not fucking confused. 
And when he expanded on that, what he said essentially was, before you tackle, before you start in on a project, everybody should be on the same page about what problem you're trying to solve. Because if you show up with a bunch of different solutions without knowing what the problem, without revealing what the problem you're trying to solve is, that leaves room for confusion. And in most depictions of villains, in most depictions of sympathetic villains in something like, say, Marvel, something like, say, the Black Panther series especially, the heroes are confused as to what the villains are trying to do for much of it. Because they are confusing the villains' actions with their end goals, and that's not their end goals. Uh, and that leads to them fighting them and never and never at any point pausing and saying, hey, what's the point of this? Why are you trying to do this? Until they're too far in. One of the probably the most genius part of Wakanda Forever is that movie ends not with Zuri killing um I forget his name, the the Hermes winged foot guy. But she ends up Forming alliance. She ends up being like, hey, <laughs> you have some good points. I should have listened. My bad. Let's go stop our let's go stop our sides from killing each other now. And that's what they end up doing. Very rarely in any kind of narrative do you get characters who are explicitly seen by the rest of the cast as the bad, not even the bad guy, but the bad thing, being explored, not necessarily as to why you thought they were bad, why they get to be good, but why people thought these, this existence or these people or this race was bad. And that's what Vermilion Gold really wants you to think about is like yes the de demon the demon race is scary yes they are super powerful but that doesn't mean they don't have feelings it doesn't mean they're not bad that doesn't mean that they're bad that doesn't mean that they're good but there's this tendency to want to to be afraid and cast and cast as bad Anything that you don't understand or anything that functions differently. Now, I am famous for calling Tokyo Ghoul a tone poem. Oh, I'd like to believe I'm famous for that on this podcast. And I stick by that. Tokyo Ghoul is a tone poem. It will never not be a tone poem for emo kids in, in middle school. But it is a tone poem. But what it does pretty well is it creates... A condition that a new breed of humanity must live under. And that is, there's a breed of humanity now that eats people to survive. And it's the only way they can, it's the way they can survive. And then it moves from there. 
And it moves from there and it shows how these people can exist. How these people can exist in society without ripping it apart. And it shows how, of course, there will be some people who don't care about society because society has decided not to care about them. And the people you're supposed to root for in that, at least in the beginning of that story, is the people trying to do the right thing and trying to do the good thing and trying to, like, come up and have found a solution that doesn't mean you kill, like, everybody on a block because throughout over, like, a month because you are hungry. And, but also doesn't mean that you're starving yourself for weeks at a time. And that's re and that part of that show is interesting. And then you get into like the like everybody needs a dominatrix mask, <laughs> a kinky sex mask. But that is beginning to do what this, what Vermilion Gold at its best does, which it, in the character of Vermilion, who is really, really the focus character by the middle of the show. Also is in name the main character, but Vermilion is really the one that they really want you to pay attention to. And... Once they get into the arc of what her past was, how discrimination has affected her, and what happened to her as a result of discrimination, it really starts to all fall into place of, oh, that's what this is. This isn't a story about, you know, big titty demon queen who is the eldritch horror. It's a story about how a little girl who was born a certain way became the el was was left no other path than to become the eldritch horror than to become the thing that is feared because it can't be understood because the depths of it can't be easily sectioned into a box and what what this show gets right about humans need to understand is that the most important thing about understanding is the first step nobody takes and that is to accept what's in front of you to accept that this is that this that something simply is and the reason why i say this is because so many people want to understand anything that is different than them but they skip that for they skip that crucial first step because they think that understanding will lead to acceptance but it's the other way around it's always been the other way around acceptance accepting that something is it's the first step to okay i've accepted that this just is now i can start to get closer to this thing and understand it and so few people do that, but so few people just accept that, oh, this is just this person. This is, this is how, how, who this person is, how this person is. This is the physical limitations of this person, whatever. And then they can start to understand that person from a place of acceptance, not a place of 
you need to prove that you're worthy of being accepted. Because that's what makes, that's what makes bad, that's what makes a bad environment for everybody involved. Uh, another great example of this is actually in the season of My Hero Academia called My, where they retitled it to My Villain Academia. And it's all about the villains. And what that, what that season, what that season of My Hero Academia is essentially about, it's about how these, how all the villain characters became what they are by the time you encounter them in the main, in the, in the current moment. It's about the fact that no one could accept a, somebody with a quirk like Shigaraki's. No one could accept somebody with a quirk like Himiko Toga's because they are like horror movie fuel. But also, these characters didn't ask to be born with these quirks. They didn't ask to be born with, like, this... A quirk that means anything they touch rots and turns to dust and drifts away in the wind. Imagine you're three and, and that little, like, nubbin in your toe activates and all of a sudden you reach out to pet your dog and your dog disintegrates in your hands. That is terrifying. Only what the, the adults in that person's life reaction to that was. Not, that's a three-year-old. Just accept what happened to, to that dog just happened and move to the next step of, okay, hey, bud, I'm going to toss you a football. Let's see what happened to the football. <laughs> let's, let's, Let's suss this out here. Let's see if you can even touch a car. <laughs> they immediately don't understand it. They, 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 they fear what they can't understand, what they can't comprehend. So they're not willing to take the first step and create and even accept that it is, and they run from it. And so you have a you have a young person who did not ask for what is hap for what they are capable of now not only not accepted but explicitly rejected by all the adult role models in their life and of course they become putty in the hand of somebody who is willing to say hey I got you <laughs> like I accept you I understand you because I was you, because somebody else rejected me. Even if that's not true, they they can tell the sweet lie of it. Because they because they have the the calmness of mind to say, okay, that's dangerous. I accept that that's dangerous. Let me offer my acceptance to this kid purposefully and out loud. So I can start to understand what this, what this kid can do as a tool, as a weapon for my advancement of my plans or whatever. <laughs> the same thing is true in Toga. Toga was born with a quirk that means that she needs to drink blood. And over time, that quirk interacted with her hormones and... She wanted to drink the blood 
of people she admired, of people she loved. And over enough rejection, that got twisted. And you end up with this character who... Her love is so one-sided and so fanatical that it creates that character. creates that almost like... Beyond Yandere character of Himiko Toga, who I'm staring at literally right now. I have a limited edition figure of her from Good Smile. But Vermil is the other version of that. Vermil is a variant of what that of what that rejection by everyone around you because of because of what you are and what you were born as can do. And that's an interesting thing to think about. That's an interesting... That's an interesting... Way for the story to turn. That oftentimes these big titty demon girl shows. These like harem, etchy, like... Kink bait shows don't take. And I, th I find it really interesting that this show really wants you to feel uncomfortable watching it. And the way they do that is Vermil is so clearly a like a grown adult woman. She has like tits for days, legs for days. She wears basically a cocktail napkin. It, they they do a costume change, they do several costume changes for her at some point and it always gets weirdly more sexual. <laughs> like they get her out of the virgin killer dress and they put her in like just kind of like alto like alto spare clothes and she never closes the shirt. You never see nipple, but like you see like full on three sixty degree boobage and cleavage. And then at some point they put her in like a school uniform and the school uniform center buttons won't close, so she just has like the full all the way around cleavage of that. And that combined with the way she takes mana, which is she chooses to make out and essentially bang Alto and take his, to take his mana. It's setting you up as the viewer to feel, to feel purposely uncomfortable. Because this is essentially like unconsenting adult actions happening to a child. And, like, even after it becomes a consenting thing, it doesn't feel... Like, it It feels the way you think it would feel to watch. But it... What it's doing there is it's putting you off balance. It's putting you off balance because it's putting you off balance because it wants... It, it knows it's about to have a bigger conversation about something entirely different but wholly related about acceptance, about acceptance because of how, because of what you are. And it knows that that's uncomfortable and it, it has this almost spidey sense of like, like if, if this show is going to be showing to Japanese people, if this show is going to be showing to white people, if they have any brains in their skulls, 
they'll be able to draw some parallels between people who are born with disabilities, between people who are born non-white and like have to go through the world that way. It's going to be pretty uncomfortable for them. But if we do this right, if we if we knock them off balance at first with the thing that you expect to be knocked off balance with, then when we hit them with this new thing, maybe we'll have broken down enough walls to get to them and to get at and to give them some real insight into how this could possibly feel allegorically of course instead of making this the thing immediately and just hoping that that the person doesn't just get immediately turned off by it and One of the hard, one of the harder things to do with non-human characters is to have them truly look non-human. It's to have them look truly monstrous and have them be relatable. The the trick that the beauty the Beauty of the Beast does is by the time the Beauty of the Beast movie is over in every scenario. All the non-human characters are humans again. Like, they, and they talk about being humans all the time in, the, in that story. Vermil reveals her true form is revealed at some point, And then she goes back to, what, to looking largely human. But she's not any different. And, but at that point, the show has already started setting up human characters as being the real monsters, as being the real problem. And it has already had the hard conversation with, of, it's already had the, an arc with Alta where he realizes that it doesn't matter that she's a demon and like, yes, she's very forward, but he's more and more okay with it because he sees that she genuinely cares about him and he genuinely genuinely cares about her. And, like, this has, in some ways, some very 30-year-old dating an 18-year-old vibes, but in the same way that that can be okay in some scenarios... It can be okay, and it can be okay in some scenarios. Like, in some ways, age can be just a number. Yes, maturity comes with time, and blah 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 blah. But if both parties are consenting, if like you weren't like prowling the streets for prey, who to say that it's right or wrong? I mean, yes. There's obvious, like, don't go out with a 15-year-old when you're 45. That's gross. And, like, that gap is big enough where... That gap is big enough on both between you and the person and the person in the beginning of their life where they can't be... Where, like, you have access to a whole mode of thinking they don't. But if somebody meets somebody... If somebody who's 24 and actually... Do this, I saw this as a Reddit post, actually, so this is perfect. 
If a woman who is 24 falls for a man who's 39 and wants to be with that man and that man wants to be with that woman, is that wrong? Or is that two consenting adults in a relationship? Now, the relationship may go bad and may fall apart at some point, but for the moment, it's two consenting adults in a relationship. Same thing as if, if you reverse gender. If the woman is 39 and the man is 24. This show confronts you with that, so it can confront you with something else. With this with this realization of Vermilla as a character has been so rejected her her entire life that like an ounce of acceptance feels like all the love in the world. And I experience this as a, as a person with a plurality of otherness and I know that other people who have a plurality or any kind of otherness to them experience this on some level. We tend to take our relationships very seriously. I tend to take my relationships pretty seriously. The way I've always described it is to many people from the outside, my friendships look like love and my love look like endless devotion. And that has changed somewhat over time with like me growing up and blah 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 but it's still largely true like it, if you look at me and Kie for example hi Kie lots of people if they see us in public they think we're straight up married they think we are a married couple we are not we have never been but people believe that because me and Kia are on the same wavelength, are very much on the same wavelength oftentimes, and we have very few fucking boundaries left. And those boundaries are mostly there, not because we wouldn't cross them, but because a reason to cross them hasn't existed. <laughs> and the... And people look at us and they're like, you guys are so close. Like, you're so, like, the, there's like a, the best way I can describe the, like, the way we would choose to sit on a couch is less like you sitting on a couch next to someone you know and more like power sitting next to Denji in Chainsaw Man. Like, Kie sees no, and I, Kie and I, for that matter, see no reason that, like, space needs to exist between us. She will sit right next to me. Like, immediately. Like, no air between arms. And I, her. And that doesn't mean that it's romantic. But it means that we understand how important we are to each other. And, but for people who don't experience that, who don't experience that kind of acceptance in anyone for years, that a drop of it can feel like a 
rushing river. And that's what you're seeing in the, like... forwardness of Ramil towards Alto. You're seeing someone who is... Who has seen all of her, who's seen what she is and what she's capable of and knows it all and has just accepted it immediately. He is he is in arguably done it in the right order. He is understanding her more and more, but he has accepted her without a second thought. And part of that is because he was starting to get at because he in his life was starting to become what she had been for years, and that is ostracized because of something out of his control, because of something that gave him great power, but was not great in a but was not great in a way that society had decided what before he was even in the picture was not great. And I think what this show wants people to do, wants this viewer to do, is it wants to see this pretty stock standard with a few with a few tweaks, magic system and society they're setting up, and see one and see the fact of how much a specific character who you grow to understand and know is suffering. I think it wants them to look at the world correctly and say, why the fuck is, is this like this? This world needs to change. And if, if the show does a particularly good job of that, the viewers will then take that, take that whole cloth and look at the world around themselves and say, why is this like this? This needs to change. Why are certain things the way they are? Why are certain things set up to advantage others, but not but to advantage a few instead of the many? Why is, or the many instead of the few? Why are people excluded from things? And the younger you go in society, the more in in modern day life, the more you you see people who are willing to call things out as ableist, willing to call things out as racist, that no one would really consider. But... Sometimes it takes an allegorical thing that is using tropes that you understand in ways that you haven't seen before to really help some... to really help somebody start to do that work and start to look around and say like so a, a perfect example from fairly recently I if you want to listen to the, my episode on the um, on anime NYC you can go do that in the feed of whatever podcast app you're using to listen to me right now but the I got the survey a couple a couple days ago and the survey said more or less hey um, how do we do? On a bunch of different metrics. It was a couple pages. It was a survey monkey thing. I did it on my phone in bed early that morning. But they asked something that I didn't think about. Because I, I am disabled, but I am fully functional. 
there's no real thing I can't do that you that you can do that I can't do realistically. If I can't immediately do it, do it. Give me a couple seconds. I'll probably figure it out. And 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 the stuff you could the stuff you could name that I couldn't do probably isn't important. <laughs> Key point. They asked about the accessibility of the of the convention. And that's when it hit me. I didn't see a single opera elevator being noted as being able to be used. Meaning only escalated. Meaning if you were in that convention in a wheelchair, you would have to have a team of people to like get get you on and off the escalator. Although you could probably do that yourself if you had been in a wheelchair for long enough. And I saw I saw somebody who was in a wheelchair in um one in a social media post at Anime NYC later later on. They're probably there on a day I wasn't there. I also didn't see any any ASL interpreters in any of the many panels I went to. And I went to some like big name industry panels. Why were why wasn't there an ASL interpreter for every single room? Now, when you're a convention and you don't have anybody, you don't have anybody going to bat for any of that on your staff, once you start to think about it, you start to think about logistics, you start to think about this and that. And that's the, that's the trap that people fall into when they start to expand outside of the status quo is they start to ask the they start to run up against roadblocks and treat them as reasons not to as treat them as excuses not to when the bottom line is on some level you don't want it bad enough because it doesn't matter to you enough in this in this show's world no one's wanted to make room for the possibility of somebody like Vermeil to exist because it hasn't mattered to them specifically enough. And it's taken decades, centuries even, to get to someone who is willing to. Who not only was willing to, but was able to. And there's this... There's this profound sadness there. And this profound sadness that after you realize this about Vermilla the character, you see she starts to hide less, but also when she's happy you realize she's happy, but she knows there's a strong possibility that this won't be the time. This won't be the time that it all goes well. This will be a time when for a couple decades she gets to not feel the hurt of it because she has someone who accepts her but unless the world is changed by that person once that person is gone it all gets undone and the, and the thing that tips you off to this immediately is not the show at first the show at first like i said starts off as your standard Titty Demon Girl harem show. Um, maybe with the added hilarity of Lilia, who is just the fucking thirstiest at all times for Alto. 
And it's it's really fucking funny because she's like so like must fuck this goodest boy and is met by a brick wall every time. <laughs> it's so funny. But the ending theme of this show all of the lyrics of the song are about like so there's a specific lyric about that goes something like I'm this isn't directly quoted link the, the the lyrics start out with if I was born normal if I could become normal could I belong something along those lines and then the next and then the next um lyrics go linking arms with all the children dancing in a circle knowing the entire time there is not a chair for me revealing that there were chairs that all the, that once the kids stopped dancing they were all going to sit down and you were going to be left standing you were going to be the odd person out you were going to be the exception and you were participating in this moment knowing that imagine that for a second imagine knowing imagine going someplace knowing that it will not be for you knowing that it will disappoint you knowing that disappointment will exist not that it might exist not that there's a possibility that it could change but knowing that it will not be for you knowing that knowing that if it was for you that would be the surprise not if it was the other way around. So I'm going to I'm gonna end this with a little anecdote from real life. I went to get, I did a pizza place in my local neighborhood. And I went to get pizza. And the, the door is pushed to enter the building. Which means it's pull to leave. It's not an automatic door. With a pizza in my one good hand, I have to get out of there somehow. In this, in this pizza place, there are two teenagers who work the catchers or who work the front of the house. Every time I've been there, the girl who works the front of the house, when, when I go to leave, she gets up, stops doing whatever the fuck she's doing, and she gets the door. She, she, she opens the door for me. And she doesn't know that I'm disabled. My hand is usually in my pocket. But it so surprised me the first time it happened. Like, I almost I, I almost cried a little. I'm almost crying a little thinking about it. Because it, it was the first time in a long time the world didn't require reworking. The world that, some, that, that another person saw and recognized, hey, he's going to need help. And without asking why, without asking if I needed it, it just happened. And there's something beautiful there. And there's a recognition. There's a recognition of difference there that wasn't before. And that's what the world of Vermil and Gold feels like. It's rushing towards with Vermil being there, but. Vermil is also very realistic and she knows it might not happen this time. It might it might not be 
it, this might not be the time. And there's a sadness there. And the, like I said, the, the first tip-off, the very first tip-off, is a very beautiful ending credit theme song, which you'll hear at the end of this. But it just, it's, it's interesting to take the form of Big Titty Demon Show and do something like and do something like that like this with that form, with those tropes, with those storytelling elements. Because I think that and I think that probably a lot of you have not watched the show. Partially because it's a very niche, very like kink very kink inspired show, but also because it's very on high dive. And in a in the way that something like um Uzaki Chan wants to hang out is is about an expression of a relationship of a kind of relationship that the characters around Uzaki and the main character, um, the main senpai character, so want to be a romantic relationship, but him and Uzaki, if they're honest, they know they deeply care about each other and maybe they don't date, but they are in each other's life for their entire lives. They are, they see each other regularly, regardless of whether they have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, they confide in each other. They have very few boundaries. They are possibly friends for the rest of their lives in the way that me and Kie, hi Kie, again, second time this episode, are friends for the rest of their lives. And society will question that at all times. Always, and will say, like, aren't you guys dating? Aren't you guys married? And the answer doesn't need to be no in that show, but... In the way that that, that stuff like that is starting to show itself in popular media, I, my hope is that we get a show kind of that had the same thoughts as Vermil and Gold, maybe with the edges of like the like kinky hentai tropey stuff filed off so other people can see it. Cause I like, I encourage you if you're listening to this to Go sign up for a high dive subscription. It doesn't cost a whole lot. And watch the show and give it probably to episode five. But even episode one had the ending theme on it. And like, you read that ending theme. It's fucking tragic. That ending theme tells you what this show is going to be before the show tells you what the show is going to be. And I just, I think it's worth your time because of it's using this form to perform this function that's really valuable to think about. And on that note, um, if you like this episode, new episodes of the podcast come out every Thursday, every other Sunday. Thursday shows are like this. They are um, about a specific show or property. Um, Sunday shows are more metatextual. They are about like big concepts. They are about fan the fandom. They are about... Um, the industry, the artistry of anime, that kind of stuff. 
And uh, and with that said, my name is Alex. This has been Lunchbox Radio. And I will talk to you. Um, I will talk to you later.